Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to the rest of you. I am back in my mom's basement, and we are live now with none other than the author of The Layered Money, the author of one of my favorite newsletters that I subscribe to, The Bitcoin Layer. If you don't know him, you've been doing this wrong the whole time. Nick Batia, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. So, Nick beyond just the work that you do writing about Bitcoin and writing about sort of the ongoing issues of the world that relate back to Bitcoin, I'd love to just dive right into Russia and Ukraine. You spent some time on your newsletter talking about the effects, not only of just Russia's invasion, but some of these sanctions as well. And one of the things that I've really been paying attention to from your writing has been, what about Taiwan? It seems to be getting ignored often, and I'd like to start our conversation there. What are your sort of concerns? I've expressed mine on this show, but for our audience who maybe doesn't read your newsletter, talk to us a little bit about what you're looking at and what what concerns you have there. My latest thoughts on Taiwan are actually a, a little different than what I wrote a couple of weeks ago as I've spent more time thinking about it and researching it. I do now believe that a Chinese... in uh, Intervention in Taiwan or an invasion or some sort of provocation is unlikely in the current in the current period. Um, the reason why there are a couple things. Number one, we see Xi Jinping's main agenda today is this idea or the theme of common prosperity. Now China goes through these. They go through these eras where they name the type of economic uh, program or you know cultural advance that they want to accomplish. And right now, common prosperity is coming off of the back of taking hundreds of millions of people out of the rural economy into a an urban economy. Now, bringing those people that have gone from agrarian to uh, urban bringing those people into the middle class. It's not world domination or anything close to dominating the Pacific theater, expansion in an imperialist way. And so right now, I just think that China is focused internal. That's the first thing. The second thing is that China is coming off of most likely um, a period of going from a period of high growth to a period of low growth. That will, again, cause China to focus on its own domestic economy. It's very reliant on foreign demand for its products still, despite trying to boost its own consumption uh, component of the economy. It's still very reliant on the export economy. It's still very reliant on dollar funding in a lot of ways uh, from corporation from the corporate level. And it's still it will be reliant on dollar funding going forward as well, uh, tapping the capital markets. And so for those reasons, I don't think China is going to rock the boat. Now, that is my bias. I could be wrong. We could see something happen tomorrow. China's, uh, you know, Taiwan is strategically important. Uh, The last thing I'll say on Taiwan is that we will see foundries in the United States and in Europe within the next couple of years and reducing our reliance, United States reliance on Taiwan and Taiwanese chips. 
And this chip shortage that we have, we are trying to build our way out of, not negotiate in an inter international relations sort of way. That will reduce the United States' willingness to defend Taiwan at the aggregate. I'm not saying tomorrow if something happened that we wouldn't step in or, or anything like that, but it just doesn't seem likely that um, Taiwan is going to be, has at the same, same strategic importance to the U.S. in five years as it does today because of new foundries and these new chip fabs. And so um, those are kind of my uh, thoughts on Taiwan right now. It's a moving situation for sure. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've been the one really pounding the drum of, I, I don't mean to say it so crassly, uh, whatever happens in Ukraine and Russia happens, but I am, I've been watching every bit of news with Taiwan. The moment that we sent troops over to the Ukraine about a month and a half ago now, uh, our Navy actually went and put ships between China and Taiwan as well. You were the one who, in one of your issues of the Bitcoin layer, highlighted a tweet that essentially expressed concern from Taiwan that, hey, nine different ships, nine different planes from Ch Chinese uh, military planes. Sorry, I can't think straight for a moment there. They've been flying over our airspace as well. Um, however, there's one thing that you actually have brought up, this idea of the, the debt that China has and that they carry. You brought up in the most recent issue of the Bitcoin layer, that Wall Street Journal article that really discusses like, what are all these different layers of money that people really have? And ultimately, like whoever carries and holds that debt receipt can just say, you know what? I don't want this anymore. But watching a little bit of these behind the table conversations with China and Russia, I selfishly and very much biased being an Iranian citizen, I've also paid attention and seen that Iran has been meeting with China and Russia as well. And there are a lot of conversations around some of these countries that have not benefited from the U.S. dollar system. Speaking to the essentially bag holder of all U.S. dollars, is there a possibility, is there a world where it benefits China to balk on and say, you know what, forget it, U.S., I don't want your money anymore. It's worthless. What does that scenario in your mind look like? Or is that just so out of the question? It is out of the question right now because of, how, see, the renminbi economy is closed. I know China likes to uh, advertise that they're internationalizing their currency, but in reality, it is a closed account between the Chinese currency and the dollar. And the exchange rate itself is manipulated by the People's Bank of China, full stop. In that way, the renminbi economy is junior to the dollar economy from a, <clears throat> from a monetary hierarchy perspective, from the layered money perspective. So if the US does to China what it did to Russia, China is toast, basically. They're shut off from their own ability to finance global trade because they're not using the renminbi as much as they're using the dollar for their global trade. They're reliant on the dollar system uh, still very heavily. So it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense for China to do anything to get the US to sanction them. And that will be, that will be at the front of their framework until, that they, until they have built a way around that. But right now we're still over 3 trillion of you know, dollar reserves. And it's well over that when you consider all the dollars that are held by China at Euro dollar banks around the world, 
et cetera. They're, they have so many dollars and they have also a ton of U.S. treasuries as well. We see that uh, with sanctions, if, you, if, chi if uh, China was sanctioned by the United States, the treasury coupon and principal payments that they would get from their debt holdings, basically from their savings, from their first layer money would be cut off. And Russia sold all of their treasuries in 2018. So, and they have di they've been divesting away from the dollar in anticipation of this. China hasn't done those types of steps. Therefore, we don't think, you know, we can't assume that China is going to do something um, that would get uh, the same. And they, were, they have to use this Russian example in their framework to understand that no, we can't we can't bomb Taiwan. Those those jets that are flying over Taiwan better just continue to fly, and they will fly them. Don't get me wrong; they will continue to fly. They will continue to maneuver in the South China Sea with their navy, and they will continue to build uh, uh, aircraft carriers. That's a huge one, right? Uh, previously, it's like, you know, the United States has all the aircraft carriers in the world and nobody has any. Well, now China's building them. So that it's not like that's going to stop. Right. But, you know, in terms of like a next 12 months thing, you know, it's definitely in my book, it's it's off the table. Um, it doesn't mean I'm, I won't be watching it closely, though. Well, I, I think what you make sense, especially the fact that Russia has taken the time and put in work to get themselves off of the U.S. treasuries that they hold. They've been hoarding gold. I'm a big believer that they've been secretly hoarding and acquiring Bitcoin very quietly. However that looks, are there instances or certain triggers that China could do to flip the script? And what are those beyond just the idea of bulking on the, bulking on the debt or actually being aggressive with Taiwan? What are sort of very quiet and subtle actions that maybe would go over the average person's head would probably go over most of our own politicians' heads, but people like us would pay attention and raise alarm bells on. The number one thing we should watch from China in terms, of, and I think uh, what I assume you're asking about is in the whole monetary reset conversation mm -hmm. here. You know, we've gone from Bretton Woods one to now Bretton Woods three, kind of in the last few weeks in terms of. Zoltan Posar's definition. He's somebody that people are starting to follow a lot now, which I think is great. He's one of the originators of the monetary hierarchy framework that I based layered money off of. So I'm thrilled to see Zoltan like growing in popularity um, and people reading his work. So in this transition to Bretton Woods 3 from Bretton Woods 2, where in Bretton Woods 1, gold is the first layer money, and Bretton Woods 2, US Treasuries are the first layer money. And in Bretton Woods 3, it's a big question mark and it's US treasuries slash something to do with China slash something to do with gold slash something to do with Bitcoin, right? And so that's the question mark that we have today. What will China do on the path to Bretton Woods 3 and to continue to establish itself as a geopolitical player? It will use the digital renminbi as an international settlement tool and it will force when it can and where it can, it will force its counterparties, so multinational corporations or foreign governments, Latin American, African, even European, to accept whether, even if it's for a moment before they swap it, 
accept digital renminbi as a monetary instrument. Get them familiar with it. Get them a wallet. Get them in the network. Get them surveilled. So China CBDC and how it uses that CBDC to gain influence on the global stage, not not with the United States, but everywhere else as it spreads its tentacles with the One Belt One Road initiative、um, and their infrastructure projects all over the world. That's something that I'm looking for,、uh, looking for from China to understand that they are indeed. Trying to put the digital renminbi within that conversation of the top of the hierarchy or part of the conversation of、uh, you know what is considered money at the global scale, what can and cannot be cut off. Because now we have to think about whether the money has an off switch or not. That's what that's what the last few weeks have taught us and have taught everyone really. Where the Wall Street Journal's article is about this, Zoltan is talking about this itself. Does your money have an on or off switch? If it's inside money, meaning it's li- liability money from a balance sheet, or in my framework, second or third layer money, it's going to have an off switch. So, what type of off switch does your money have? I think it's important. Who has control of that off switch is important. And and is there money that doesn't have an off switch? And that can only be answered in two ways.、Uh, I mean, in, with yes for two things: gold and Bitcoin. Nothing else. Can be argued that it doesn't have an off switch. So I think that you know that's how I'm thinking about China. It's in terms of their digital、uh, renminbi. We will have to be keeping a very close eye on this digital renminbi. Everyone watching, please be sure to to keep your eyes out for that as well. And, and let's、uh, let's all learn from what Nick is teaching us here. I want to present something now to you so that we can have a conversation around oil.、Um, I know that my framework in this question is not. The correct framework, but oil is now reaching all-time highs yet again. Russia controls、uh, much of the oil and gas for Europe, not so much for us over here in America. I think Biden's actions were more a signal of support to European and to the European efforts, as well as to Ukrainians, rather than a an actual effect on what we will feel.、Uh, that didn't stop oil and gas prices to get to six dollars a gallon for unleaded gas over here in Los Angeles. At what point do some countries that have insane oil reserves start to introduce oil as a form of money? Whether it's hey, we're our our dollar is now just going to be backed by the hundred million barrels of oil we have. You don't want it, that's fine. But this is now more valuable than gold in some regards, in some places for some people. So Q, I'll answer it、uh, in in a way that's close to home to you. We saw Iran and India engage in gold for oil swap. Uh, years ago, during、uh, certain sanctions,、mm-hmm. so the answer to your question is that it already exists as something that is front of mind for nations that it pertains to. Okay, like Iran. Okay, Iran has to understand that its oil is black gold. It can use real gold and black gold in trade because the two are real, and they have a price and. You know they can be put on ships and sent,、uh, you know, from point A to point B. So it is already something that is front of mind.、Uh, one thing that uh, is important, uh, you know, from the Chinese perspective is that gold and oil、uh, contracts settling in Shanghai have been active for years. 
And so China already understands this and it is in their framework because, you know, when we're talking about asset classes, commodities, Bitcoin, gold, oil, and, you know, you get the argument that a Bitcoin's not a currency because it's volatile. Everything is volatile and everything has a hedging market because everything moves in price relative to other things. So a bank will make you a market in an oil for dollar swap, oil for gold, oil for renminbi, you know, Bitcoin for dollars, Bitcoin for oil. They'll make you a market in anything as long as they can make a spread. And, and they do the spread by what do they do? That when they sell, let's say you want to go long, they sell you a short, they write a contract, then they go and long into the market with somebody else, maybe another bank. And they do so at a level where they capture a spread and their risk goes to zero. They have zero delta, right? Means they don't have any exposure to the price. They don't care. They're bankers. They're not gamblers, right? They are. And so we have a very sophisticated hedging market for every single asset class. It exists for Bitcoin as well. Now it's growing and it's existed for, for oil for many decades. It's one of the it's one of the original use cases for the you know online global futures marketplace and the fact that we only have you know less than you know less than thirty six hours when the market is closed on weekends because you know it closes in New York and opens in New Zealand and and on Sunday afternoon for us here in LA so that, you know that would be my answer there it's already in the framework uh and it just it doesn't get a lot of mainstream attention let's say uh because it's the same thing as people criticizing bitcoin for not being a currency because it's volatile it just fails to understand that every asset has its place and every asset can be hedged into or out of depending on use cases and actual demand so, you know, let's always remember Iran and India, but also the fact that China and Russia have been doing bilateral trade without um, the dollar for oil for many, many years now as well. Uh, I'd, I'd love to also maybe have you dive in a little bit deeper on just, you know, oil is being touted as almost this sort of like carrot at the end of the stick during this entire conflict. We saw before. Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Russia went, the Russia finance minister announced, hey, we do not want to be involved in Bitcoin, essentially trying to push Bitcoin away from Russia. Within 24 hours, Vladimir Putin comes out and says, actually, we have such a competitive advantage given all of the energy we have, given our natural gas mining, we should be a world leader in Bitcoin. And I am pushing our government to, to figure out a way to incorporate Bitcoin, whatever that looks like. Not too long after that, Russia invades Ukraine. Do you view these as a connected issue or are these two separate issues that are eventually going to be connected? What is Bretton Woods 3? It is a transition of the monetary system from, from the past to the present to the future, right? And Bitcoin has a role in Bretton Woods 3. Today, that role is small, but we all know it's going to grow. How fast it's going to grow and how fast it's going to reach the top, nobody knows. And it's silly to speculate there. What, what is not silly to speculate on is the fact that it is growing in importance. So Putin's move to embrace Bitcoin is related to Bretton Woods 3, 
what he's doing on the global stage, you know, is a result of the fact that we are transitioning into a world where we don't need U.S. Treasuries by themselves to sustain the financial system. But make no mistake, U.S. Treasuries are still the instrument that holds the whole dollar system together. So, you know, we talk about potentially, you know, the U.S. interest rates, you know, going up in the face of inflation. What we really should be thinking about is what will happen to U.S. Treasuries when inflation starts to impair the economy and real companies start to default? And what happens to all that trillion, all those trillions in credit issued to the public sector, not to the U.S. that can print its own money and get the central bank to buy its debt if it needs to, but what is everyone, what's going to happen to everyone else? You know, one thing I think that isn't as understood is this crowding out effect that U.S. treasuries have on the rest of the world economy. When the treasury supply grows, yes, the yields might increase, but then the demand is always there. The auctions are always bid, means somebody has to sell something else to buy U.S. treasuries. And what is that something else? It's stocks, it's other bonds. And so, um, you know, I still think U.S. treasuries hold their role because it holds the dollar together. I still think interest rates, even though they could go up over the next year with inflation, they're still in this 40-year downtrend. And it's a demographic gravity towards zero interest rates, um, just based off of all of the other debt in the dollar system. It keeps treasuries uh, very well bid. You right after the announcement or not announced right after russia had invaded ukraine and off of powell's statements had discussed the idea that hey the 50 basis point hike from the fed is is probably not going to be a thing we will see some uh, what effect is that going to have both on our economy here and on a global stage for these treasuries because if it starts to devalue and all of a sudden we turn into a system where we're we're hurting our own currency value what incentive do these other countries have to actually sell equities that are appreciating in value to buy something that historically may have worked, but is right now not working? So it comes down to the risk spectrum. If, if things are going poorly across the world, you know, stocks will sell off. And if things are going well, things, you know, stocks will do well. And that's, um, that's kind of the basic way to think of things. So if things are not going well across the world, you know, companies are going to have trouble in an economy. That's, that's when we're in recession. Right now, we're in an inflationary environment, which is causing its own problems. So certain companies are benefiting from the inflation, others are being hurt from it. Um, and so we, we, it's dangerous to correlate one thing to the other. I think there's, there's so many different asset classes and so many different forces on um, US interest rates. But in general, I believe that with so much debt out in the system. And remember, a lot of the stock market valuation is due to margin lending as well. When interest rates go up and it, we have a tightening on the economy, liquidity of, of the products that, that are generally thin in liquidity in a bear market, you know, that's why we say stairs up, elevator down. That's where you see the elevator down in prices. And we see that in cryptocurrency as well, not just Bitcoin. We see it all across. When things are going well, you know, it takes the stairs up. But then when, when margin calls happen, you see 30% drops all of a sudden. That type, type of price action 
Um, and that type of that type of selling, you end up liquidating your position and buying a money market fund, which is driving treasury yields lower. And so there, there are chain reactions when interest rates rise and financial conditions tighten, which ends up causing U.S. treasuries to be bid and interest rates to go back lower. So right now, your question about the hikes, right? Right now, we will see the Fed hiking rates, right? We'll see it next week. They'll hike 25. We'll probably see another 25 in June. We'll probably see them maybe, uh, you know, just continue to hike 25 every meeting. They will do that for a period of time because monetary policy works with a 12-month lag. So they, they're not even, it's not even intellectually honest to judge what their interest rate uh, hikes are doing to the economy until six to 12 months have passed by. So we will see a series of hikes. I don't know how long they'll be able to do it. My suspicion is that they will be able to hike um, north of 1%. That means, let's say, the first four hikes. Uh, I think they'll be able to do that without blowing up the world. I do think that monetary policy does work with a six to 12-month lag. So you won't actually see the effects of a 25 basis point interest rate hike in March until September or December or next March. So I think that for the time being, we will see the Fed hike. I think they will get the first three to four hikes without a problem. Then we'll see. We'll see how it's going. We'll also see if they knock off risk markets before and they have to reverse course. My suspicion is that we will see more than one hike. We will see more than more, more than two hikes. We'll see them get to one percent. And I have some suspicion that they'll even be able to continue beyond that, given where inflation is today, that they will be motivated to raise rates to two percent. Um, whether or not they can get there, it's way too early to, to speculate on that. But it's that, that's what I'm going to be watching. And I'm definitely committed to communicating that the Fed will be hiking at least its first few times and that it won't be scared by a little drawdown in stocks. Listen, the NASDAQ is down 20% from its highs and the Fed has not flinched. Neither have the short-term interest rate markets. They are still continuing to price in 150 basis points of hikes until December, which is a pretty aggressive path. So we'll wait and see. I'm a little curious and I want to make sure I'm following you properly here. When you say that these markets may not, or the markets won't really feel the effects for six to 12 months, as you mentioned, NASDAQ is down to 20%. S&P is not yet there, but I, I do believe it will get there shortly after. Are you talking in the equities market or where are you discussing that? Yes. When I say monetary policy works with a six, six to 12 month lag, we're talking about the real economy and how borrowing conditions affect the real economy. That happens with a six to 12 month lag. The stock market and other markets do not work with any lag. They are leading indicators. Mm. Okay. So maybe this 20% drawdown is pricing in the first hundred basis points of hikes. Maybe it's pricing in the first 25 basis points of hikes. We won't know until the market reacts along the way. Listen, Q, price is truth. You know that if you've watched me or read me, you know I say it all the time. The price will tell us what is happening. Right now, the price of the short-term interest rate market is telling us that the Fed will be hiking this year. It's also telling us the stock market price is also telling us that 
it's not the end of the world, but we're nervous as fuck. Okay. With the volatility that is, you know, volatility that is uh, just generally increasing across asset classes. Credit is nervous, meaning high yield credit. Stocks are nervous. Oil and gold are both rallying off of not really the Fed, but other things, war and Bretton Woods 3. And um, Bitcoin is kind of just chopping around in the war, kind of just flat hanging in there, um, which is really interesting. And I think a little exciting for people that have been tiring of the correlation with equities, but it still is demonstrating some of that. And yeah, so I hope that answers your question about what, you know, you know, what is that, that six to 12 month lag? It's the, it's the real economy, but the price of stocks, the price of yields, um, or sorry, yields themselves will tell us what is happening. And so that's why I got, you know, I always have my eye glued to price because if <laughs> you have to communicate what the price is communicating to you. And that is what I try to do in the Bitcoin layer. What I will provide you snapshots of where prices are today where they have been over the last few weeks, which tells a story. And that's as far as we can look without getting into just raw speculation, which it's fun to do, but we have to call that what it is. And then, you know, call the analysis what it is as well. So we'll see. I think the stock market hangs in there in uh, amidst these first few uh, interest rate hikes and we don't get that 50% correction, but you know, that, that, that's just a guess. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone, whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Uh, to, to speculate for a brief moment here, we watched Powell attempt to do something like this, not at the, with the geopolitical background he has now coming off of a two-year pandemic. However, in 2018, when he did attempt to raise rates, did it a little too quickly, markets suffered as a result. At what point does he, do you think he or the Fed stops this tightening? Is it going to be a stock market issue? Is it going to be more of a, we are entering a war, we need to make money cheap to be accessible? Where Where is that pure speculation, uh, of course? Yeah, I think it comes down to uh, the liquidity of uh, bank funding. And that's always what it comes down to. So when banks aren't able to roll their funding to the next day and they're facing uh, default, that's what catapults the financial system. And that's when the Fed will stop. So that's why stocks going down even 50% doesn't knock the Fed off of their rocker. 
What would is uh, high yield spreads going out a thousand basis points and then certain banks that have that on their balance sheet unable to roll their repo financing and then they're facing default, for example, like a major bank somewhere. That's the type of thing that will get the Fed going. So what should we be watching? Um, of course, we watch stocks because stocks are a general leading indicator and can give us the sense of what liquidity is like in the market because stocks do trade on margin, right? Uh, there's a fundamental cost basis there's a uh, of stocks, there's a level at which the long-term buyers will say, I'm definitely buying here. And then the rest is trading margin. We see that in Bitcoin as well. We have a realized price, which it never really goes below. Sometimes it does, but it bounces right back above. And then we'll see huge rallies where we go to three, four times the realized price. And a lot of that is margin. It can be wiped out, whether in three days, three months. And so we'll, wa we'll watch stocks, but... We watch the steepening of the yield curve. Here's something that I haven't written about, okay? I've used the word flattening nonstop in the newsletter you guys have read. We always talk about the flattening. Why? Because rates continue to flatten. When rates steepen, you know that the rates market is pricing in the rate cuts and the policy reversal. So until the yield curve steepens, the market is not telling you that the Fed is going to reverse course. So we'll watch the yield curve. Right now it's, let's say the two tens uh, curve is at about 30 basis points, which means it's still positively sloped from twos to tens. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's, been, it's been flattening for a while. It could go to zero, it could go, that curve could go negative, but when it starts to increase again and go steeper, that means that the, the market is pricing in lower short-term interest rates relative to long-term interest rates. And right now the market is pricing in higher short-term interest rates, but no change you know, in the long-term interest rate. And that's why the curve flattens. So to answer your question, it's when the curve steepens. And, um, and that's why I'm signaling the flattener and it continue to be because it means the Fed is still into this idea that they're going to hike. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. And for, for anyone else like me who reads it and hears a lot about the idea of flattening the curve or even just the idea of, of rate hikes, this helps you visualize it a lot better during this rate hike period. This is that steepening of the curve that you are talking about. Uh, correct, Nick? I'm, I'm well, understanding. Well, when the, when rates are being, when rates are being hiked, the short-term, the short-term yields are increasing. Right. The long-term yields aren't really moving anywhere. They've, they're about flat since the war started and they are higher off of the pandemic, but um, they haven't increased nearly as much as short-term yields have increased. That is a flattening of the yield curve. So when they hike, they're flattening the yield curve. When they stop hiking, the market will price in cuts and the yield curve will, the yield curve will re-steepen. Got it. So we have not seen any re we have not seen any re-steepening. We are still in the flattening period, which means we're still in the market pricing in hikes. Got it. Got when it. it starts to re-steepen aggressively, that's the market telling you the Fed is done hiking, short-term yields are coming back down. Even if they never get, even if the hikes never get to where the yields were pricing them in, 
they'll come back down to price in the cuts, um, you know, back to zero. So we're nowhere near uh, any steepening trends establishing themselves. But when we are, I'll flag it for you guys. I look forward to that. We now haven't really spent a ton of time on Bitcoin, and, and I'd love to spend, I think, as much time as possible here on out just discussing Bitcoin uh, and its role on the global stage. We've watched it in Canada show its importance of being a uh, censorship-resistant money. We're watching in both Ukraine and Russia, people who are losing value in all of their money, trying to hide it elsewhere or try to get out of the country in a safe and reliable way. Ukraine limiting how much money you can take out, Russia doing similar actions. What are what are you proud of on about Bitcoin on this global stage? And what are you nervous about with Bitcoin on this global stage? Yeah, um, I'm not nervous about anything. Um, what I'm proud of is the display of, of Bitcoiners um, in, in teaching and showing how we can use Bitcoin today in these incredibly important times to help save lives. I'm not nervous about the fact that the, what happened in Canada, what happened in Russia and Ukraine with Bitcoiners, Bitcoin education, Bitcoin adoption. I'm not nervous that that didn't increase the price or any um, let's say, you know, immediately measurable adoption metric of Bitcoin. Okay. The reason that I'm not nervous about that is because we know we can feel it in the culture that we advanced Bitcoin one step further in Canada, one step further in Ukraine, one step further in Russia. And, you know, we're able to battle the Russia narrative with the Ukrainian example that look, Ukraine is using Bitcoin too. This is not about Putin using Bitcoin, it's about Bitcoin being there for anything. And uh, that's one of the uh, narratives that I'm extremely happy. It's, it's, very, it's very hard to duck that narrative if you wanna put you know, Bitcoin in a bad light because you're associating it with Vladimir Putin and his uh, you know, aggressive invasion of Ukraine. So I'm very proud of the marginal adoption of Bitcoin by people in countries that have use cases due to the selfless education efforts of Bitcoiners. Um, I'm not on the ground in any of those countries. There are people on the ground giving wallets, explaining things, um, teaching, teaching their fellow countrymen and women how to use Bitcoin, why it's important, spreading the message. Everybody that has gone on a media interview over the last few weeks on TV, on radio, any podcast, and said to a general audience, not the Bitcoiners, we already know why Bitcoin is here for that, but to everyone else, hey, this is Bitcoin. This is why it's important. They're all heroes. They're all doing the work that we need to advance Bitcoin adoption worldwide. Uh, Bitcoin is a, it's a unifying force. It's mutually accepted across continents and cultures. It's something I've talked about. It's what makes it so, so special. And um, so I'm, I'm proud of the educational effort because we can't, it's, it's not even, it's not even right to say, oh, this Russia-Ukraine conflict should cause a rise in the Bitcoin price because it will bring attention. That's not what this is about. It should bring long-term adoption and understanding of Bitcoin as, an, as a necessity and as an important geopolitical force and cultural force, societal force. And 
that builds up over a long time. So I, you know, recently said that not into hyper Bitcoinization from the explicit of it having, having happening really fast. I'm into a slow Bitcoinization process because that's how we teach the world about something. You want to get a billion people on the same page in terms of monetary reality, it's going to take time. So every, you know, that's why I write, you reach each person one at a time. Maybe they will make a decision for their family. Maybe they will make a decision for their multinational corporation. Maybe they will make a decision for their nation, right? Who did Bukele read to trigger him into all that? You know, not me, somebody, somebody, right? And, you know, I don't know that his whole uh, Bitcoin origin story, uh, but there, there's somebody that helped him. There's somebody that helped me. I'm helping others. And we all have to educate each other about this idea that we think we're in Bitcoin because we think it can make a better for a better society and a better culture. The money will help the culture. The money will help the society, not that it's the better money. Why do we need better money so we have a better society? So that's why we're in it. You ask any Bitcoiner that's really in it, they care about the, the race. They don't, they're not traders. They're in it for our, our human race. And um, it's very apparent when you talk to Bitcoiners, it's why we all get along <laughs> really well is because we, we at least have that in common that uh, we're help. We want to, we want to help uh, people and we want, we think it's more fair. That's, I kind of, you know, um, an important thing. We think it's a more fair way to conduct a monetary system. Uh, that's the critique of fiat and where all of that stuff comes in and uh, Seyfedin's important work on uh, time preference and what, you know, how we think about time preference as well. So if we, you know, push the message of Bitcoin and time preference and all these, uh, you know, shared realities, that we can share, you know, about Bitcoin, then I think that we're all doing our part. I think you say it best and it, uh, it deserves a thank you from all of us at Bitcoin because you have been slowly but surely one by one helping people to see that light. I am one of those people that you have helped educate. I do want to, two, two part, maybe more of a statement and then a question to follow. When we're talking about sort of this, we have to chip away one, one at a time. You make mention in one of your previous posts about just Bitcoin adoption happening at the margin. And it doesn't matter if it's just one person at a time, whether it's an uber wealthy oligarch or just a middle-class family realizing this is what they need. Uh, and, and that is in essence what you, you've just described and outlined for us here. Uh, I am, however, a little curious, a little selfish. There is the narrative that the media will always push that this is now Putin's new weapon. We've seen various articles come out of this, of this ilk or of this theme that, hey, Bitcoin is helping Russia. We can't, like Bitcoin supports the bad guys. Canada pushed forward saying, hey, if you send Bitcoin to these truckers, you're now a terrorist. What are some things that we as just individuals can have in our back pocket that you maybe would recommend us sort of point to and say, hey, this is how I counter the discussion of, Putin's not really the weapon. It, Ukraine's also using it. Justin Trudeau shouldn't have been taking away anyone's access to money to begin with. What are other sort of themes or topics that we can be using to help educate people? Yeah, you have to counter the Russia 
with the Ukraine, showed them the tweet from the government itself raising funds. To be very honest, I think this is one of the most important things that we have to do is explain Bitcoin as a good force and not as a bad force. And so, you know, any story that you can find about how it helps people avoid, because people understand dictators, right? So they understand Putin and then they associate. But how do you use Bitcoin to escape the actions of dictators, not how dictators are using Bitcoin? So like with Maduro or, you know, other places where people are using Bitcoin as a freedom tool. That's how to, that is how to counter the argument. Explain Bitcoin as a freedom tool and that anybody can use it. Anybody can use any tool for good or for bad. And it is, it really is, you have to shock them into how oversimplistic it is of thinking to associate a technology with bad people and, and end the argument without looking at the other side of the coin. We do have to shake, uh, you know, people out of these, like wake them up, you know, jolt them into like, hey, do you understand how you just were programmed to associate Bitcoin with Putin and you didn't even factor in the fact that the people on the other side that are being bombed are raising money in Bitcoin to defend themselves, even if it, even if it saved one life. Absolutely. And, and you just have to, you can't just let the narrative run over us anymore. The, we've, we've gone so far past the Silk Road. I mean, you, you, we're so far away from that, you know, that um, end, end that line of questioning quickly, swiftly and quickly. Move on to the next topic. There are a lot of other things to, you know, critique Bitcoin in terms of it's not ready to step in to Bretton Woods 3 today. That's a legitimate critique. Why is it not ready? It's not big enough. It's not old enough. It's, uh, there aren't as many nodes as there could be. The mining is sufficiently decentralized. The, the hash power is strong enough to support it. Uh, the mark, there is market value to accommodate international cross-border commerce, but it's not ready to replace gold or US treasuries today. Let's talk about that and how we get there not um, you know, silly media narratives that really can be combated quickly. The same thing for the energy thing, the boiling the oceans one, end it quickly. Methane capture, end it quickly. You know, you, you, you gotta, we, we are armed now. I always point people to Nick Carter's writing on, on the energy stuff. It's, it's an easy fix. The Ukraine one is one tweet now. You don't even have to like send them to an article. It's right in front of you. That would be my advice to people. And uh, you know, the little teaser is, the next book is going to be the next, uh, you know, bit of armor for people to to respond. Bitcoin is a force for good, and um, we have to understand it in a cultural context. And that is what my second book will be about. I have been dying to ask about that as some, as you teased it a little bit in your in your newsletter, suggesting something big is going to come out. Uh, I know that you're, you've touched a little bit about what you're going to discuss. Can you share a little bit more details, perhaps, about what? some of our audience, what well, I'm looking forward to reading it in your next uh, book. Right. So uh, something that I maybe people noticed or didn't, but when I went to write Layered Money, I stopped the media and I stopped writing. I almost pretty much stopped tweeting because at a certain point, now I have to go write it and, and execute so that I'm not 
so that the ideas are as focused as they can be. So these interviews that I'm doing over the next couple months will be my last for uh, the year as I basically transition back into a full full writing mode for book number two. So in these last couple months with the few uh, interviews that I'm going to be able to do, readers and listeners will get the first kind of whiff of the idea here um, before I go, you know, and, and, and sink my teeth into it. And it really is this idea that Bitcoin is, is something that we share and it does transcend culture, cultures and continents. And the reason that it transcends is because it is so unique in human history. There's something about Bitcoin that will get us to a billion believers. And so I'll, I'll kind of just end with that word in, in terms of believers. And that is the way that I am framing my research now um, going forward. And um, that, that, that's, what I'll, that's what I'll say. It's a book about Bitcoin. It will have uh, elements of history in it. And it will have elements of Bitcoin today and its role in society. I'm extremely excited to, to get going on it. Um, the past few weeks have really seen, just have seen it take off it, in terms of my brainstorming is now, I find myself thinking about the book a whole lot, whereas I haven't ever, I mean, since Layered Money, I haven't, I've tried to think about what to write next and it just wouldn't come. Now it's, it's hitting me and um, so my, I'm going to you know, do my best uh, to balance the Bitcoin layer with my book because uh, the Bitcoin layer is about Bitcoin today and what's happening and, and the markets and global macro. Uh, I don't anticipate that there's going to be a ton of rates or global macro explicitly in my next book. And so I'll, that will allow me to balance the Bitcoin layer with the writing of the second book. And I do uh, hope readers will stick with me through the writing of the book. I do anticipate the same sort of frequency in terms of writing once a week or so, um, bring, keeping people up to date on my analysis, what I'm thinking. But in terms of pods and, and tweets, it'll be, it'll be you know, quietly into the night, I think, for a while. And, uh, but it's, I'm, I'm very excited for that. And um, it's a blessing to, to be able to you know, take that journey again, for sure. Uh, I can only say how excited I am, and I'm sure many of our viewers are equally excited, if not more, uh, for the next book to come out while also being a little sad to hear that we won't be hearing your voice and hearing you articulate your thoughts out. I will be frequently checking for those emails to come in as well, uh, as I find your analysis on the global stage is just very helpful because you ignore all the noise. You cut right to it and you essentially say, these are the facts. This is how I, Nick Batia, interpret them. And this is what maybe is, are certain scenarios that could play out and how we should react accordingly to it. Uh, it's vastly helpful when I read people who are immensely smarter than I help articulate things that maybe go over my head. No, I, I appreciate that a lot. And, uh, you know, it, the Bitcoin layer is, an, is a chance for me to express my opinion on a, on a regular basis. And the fact that people subscribe, that some are, are even paying subscribers or founding members is ridiculously motivational because they're basically saying what you have put out, 
we embrace and we want more of. So I can't thank the, the subscribers enough. It means a lot. I do want to ask you, and I don't know if you had the chance, um, Biden released this executive order. There seems to be a lot of emphasis on a CBDC. What, if any effect, does this have on Bitcoin, Bitcoin's place on US legislation, or is this just you know noise flash in the pan type of stuff? Yes. Yeah, so uh, readers of Layered Money will will know that I uh, you know predicted a US CBDC, a Fed coin in toward the end of the book. I think it will be an important uh, political tool for the US government and the Federal Reserve in their own individual rights. The Fed will find power and utility from a Fed coin. The US government will find power and utility from a Fed coin. So we will see one and it will affect policy. It will potentially reshape fiscal and monetary policy in this country. And so it's important to watch what will happen to the United States of America with a CBDC. It will impact policy. Um, that's what I'll say about you know the initial announcement is that yes, we've seen this coming. It will happen, and it will it will be a two you know. And if you want to think about the branches of government, it'll be a three pronged approach: the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the Fed. And then the judicial branch will probably have to rule on it at some point as well when somebody sues. Uh, you know, the Fed for, for Fed coin. So, and the, and the judicial branch will rule on that and, and we'll go forward. So you'll have, and that's not even to mention the agencies involved. So you have a bunch of parts of the U.S. government touch this over the next few years and we'll see something come out and it will, um, you know, in terms of how much actionable analysis is there based on the announcement yesterday, I don't think a whole lot. I think we understood that There'll be elements of UBI in there. There'll be elements of fiscal payments. There'll be elements of uh, modernizing the monetary rails. There's elements of all of that. And you know that is to be expected. How does it affect Bitcoin? It's bullish for Bitcoin because it shows us that we're in the new era of digital currency. In Layered Money, I showed how price settlement of digital currencies based off of atomic swaps or even P2P escrow accounts that you can discover prices of one you know, digital currency versus another, we will see Bitcoin emerge as an arbitrage mechanism for digital currencies, including central bank digital currencies and stable coins over the long term. So it, it just reinforces that we are in the Bitcoin era. The word blockchain, the word crypto, the word CBDC, the word stablecoin are all derivatives of Satoshi Nakamoto's innovation. And that will, will never, in an academic setting, you have to you know, explain why you're explaining something the way it is. Well, if we take a Bitcoin first approach to research, it is because it came first in a line of academic studies and progressions in crypto uh, cryptography and apply, you know, applied mathematics and all of that. So Bitcoin is the innovation that separates the past from the future. So anything associated with Bitcoin is bullish for Bitcoin. And it, it will, you know, one day it'll show people that the Fed can seize your money, censor you, you know, the government can put you in jail because you spent your Fed coin here or there, and then they'll go to Bitcoin and you'll have another marginal adopter. And then the press will say, look, Bitcoin is only for criminals because the government put someone in jail 
for spending their Bitcoin in the wrong place and the cycle will continue, but the marginal adopter will, will always be there. I am kind of curious on something that you, you mentioned very briefly. The CBDC will give sort of the Fed and, and the federal government in particular a little bit more oversight and control of our financial systems. However, and I'm just using, I literally just pulled this up on statista.com. So grain of salt of how accurate this information is. In 2020, only 12% of our POS point of sales uh, transactions were done with cash. And that figure dropped down to 11% in 2021. So it's suggesting that there are almost 90, so high 80% of transactions are done digitally. In theory, I would argue that all of these are able to be vetted by the government just as easily as them transa- us transacting the CBDC. So what what is really happening? Can you break down that difference of the CBDC gives them more control in this aspect, in this facet? They're able to pull this transaction and say, hey, actually, you know what? No, you're not allowed to spend that money there. Like, buy. Is that a possibility or what does so, that mean? Yeah, let's say the government you know, suspect somebody of something and they want to shut them off, right? We talked about money having the on-off switch. They have to call Chase and get Chase to do it. That could take 24 hours. It could take 48 hours. It could take three hours or it can take four seconds now. So it is different. It's not the same. It is a, it is an additional tool for surveillance and for control it, it, it changes who has the on-off switch in their hand. That's, you know, I think that's the way to think about the surveillance. Yes, you're correct. The government can have all the Visa records, all the Chase records, all the Wells Fargo records, all the PayPal records, but it has to use some subpoenas, some influence, some something. And maybe the 11% figure is something that they're not a big fan of. They, they wish they could have more cash usage and they say, well, use our fed coin you know it's uh you know you don't have to deal with the commercial bank you know you can use it anywhere so we'll see you know how that unfolds but i do think that a fed coin is coming to everyone's pocket and one day they will try to do away with paper money not anytime soon because the world is actually quite reliant on paper us dollars circulating abroad to function and so, you know, that's a long, but the European Central Bank, maybe, yeah, uh, no paper in five years or so, something like that in Europe. I think it's, it's completely possible. Purely speculating at this point, but do, it, do you envision just one for one swap where all paper dollars become obsolete and it's now we're going to issue the CBDC, foreign governments, let us know how much dollars you have and we'll transfer the appropriate amount to you, individuals to make I absolutely agree with the UBI argument. If you're making less than a certain threshold, we're going to replace all the money in your bank account with the CBDC and then some to incentivize, oh, I get free money if we do this, I'm on board. Is that a scenario you envision or what does in your world that scenario look like? Yeah, something like a a 365-day rollout of the currency, a window to swap it, something like that. Yeah, you know, incentives, you know, free $10 to open your FedCoin wallet with Wells Fargo on your Wells Fargo app, you know, get your FedCoin widget within your Wells Fargo app, get 10 free dollars in there. And then Wells Fargo will try to get you to sell it for Wells Fargo deposits by offering you a higher interest rate or Wells Fargo coin. 
and you know that that is that is the future that we're in for um people can use uh chapter nine of of layered money as kind of a loose guide into a world where we will have bitcoin wells fargo coin and fed coin maybe all in the same app in the future we'll you know seamlessly swap between you know maybe i don't know what the ui will will look like but we will have different settlement layers different tokens in the in the uh, digital economy and bitcoin will pretty much remain the only thing without an on off switch and with complete sovereign you know ability to sovereignly control and for that reason uh, bitcoin will remain unique um for for forever my head hurt a little bit envisioning a world where the likes of Bank of America and Wells Fargo, on top of the way that they've abused the current fiat system, will then be given the opportunity to go ahead and create their own token as they see fit. Like my head actually hurts imagining that. So I'm gonna well, those will be that'll be the one for one swap that you're actually talking about, where you will your deposit will go away and you'll just have a token in the same amount. And so the deposit rails, which is the old way of doing business, will be gone. And the new way will be the stable coin that they've issued you in lieu of the deposit. So something something like that I envision from commercial banking. And yeah, it does, uh, it does uh, hurt your brain a little bit when you think about um, the abuse of uh, you know, banking liabilities. So uh, stable coin is just another type of banking liability. And it's why people should be wary of where their stable coins are coming from and who's issuing them. I'm going to make a, a ridiculous speculative uh, sort of idea announcement to put in the back of everyone's heads who are listening or watching right now. You know, nostalgia has been hot. It's been hot for generations. I will definitely be keeping one $1 bill, a $5 bill, 10, 20, and a hundred. And uh, just one of each, maybe, maybe to make it fun, I'll, I'll get it from the last year they're ever minted. And my grandkids will get it. And I'll be like, there was a time where this was our producer, Chris is hold, holding up the, the bill. Is it a billion dollar or a trillion dollar trillion dollar bill from Zimbabwe that he showed everyone yesterday. So uh, I'm gonna make that claim right now that everyone should, before it's too late, have just a one of each bill for your grandkids to show them that there was actually paper money that we used to transact back in our day. Um, Cause I have one of those, uh, <laughs> I have one of those Zimbabwe notes. I was just looking for it somewhere here. Yeah. A uh, hundred trillion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do want to, this is a question from YouTube, a, a little off topic. Uh, if you wouldn't mind entertaining it, can you talk a little bit about balance of trade and balance of payments in the Bitcoin denominated world? The, the question asker is guessing that they would essentially go away, but what are the implications if they do? Uh, you know, that's a that's a really interesting question. Balance of trade and balance of payments are not going away. You know, we're always going to have debts between countries based on what people are producing. So to see Bitcoin used as cross-border trade tool, whether to have debt, you know, debits or credits in terms of the balance of trade and cross-border, cross it's not even something I've thought about, but something that, you know, you'll have to see to evolve toward a Bitcoin standard or at least to see you know, what I do predict is that companies and countries having to dual denominate their balance sheets in Bitcoin and local or Bitcoin and dollars because, you know, half or approaching half or a significant portion of their business is being done 
and conduct it in Bitcoin. So they'll have to run dual balance sheets. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm watching for is how the dual denominated balance sheet world evolves right now. You have zero countries and zero multinational corporations doing dual denominated Bitcoin and dollar accounting. So we can only, we only to go up from here. Yeah, I, I buy into the dual denominated. I even think of a more basket of currencies, if you will, where Bitcoin along with the dollar and, and maybe gold and some other currencies that survive this sort of uh, Bretton Woods three that we are living through. Uh, what in, in a scenario like that, what are things that you are keeping an eye out that could potentially be incorporated in that? Well, the dollar, gold, and Bitcoin. Yeah, so there was a there was a big trend toward SDR, which is the special drawing rights from the IMF um, over the last several years, but it just seemed to die off as you know support for it just seemed to die off over the last few years. As I haven't read the word SDR once since the Russian war started, and I think that's evidence that that idea is dead. So it is a big question mark. What does Bretton Woods three look like? And I think the word basket is wrong. I think you won't see a basket anywhere. You'll see fractured uh, systems and parallel systems and side, you know, systems. Like the Bitcoin system is is on the side. It's not in a basket with the dollar and gold in in the Chinese eyes, right? So Russia, Russia will use gold. It will have cross border trade in gold. It will have cross border trade in Bitcoin. It will have cross border trade in renminbi. It won't do a basket of renminbi, gold, and Bitcoin with Brazil. Uh, I don't see a basket being part of the conversation, or you know, the word basket really coming in in any serious way. Even though some central banks might say, let's say, um, you know, emerging market central bank might say, well, we hold a basket of dollars, euros, and renminbi. That's okay. They hold a basket, but they're not necessarily having a balance sheet that's denominated in a basket or, or using that uh, sort of um, actionable basket sort of tool as an instrument. I don't, I don't see that. That, that makes absolute sense. Nick, if and when, uh, one last speculative question, if Russia is the next country to adopt Bitcoin in any capacity, either legalize it, legal tender, that leaves us only El Salvador and Russia in the midst of a conflict with Russia. Long-term beneficial to Bitcoin in the short term, what does that look like from a US policy as well as a, a global policy on Bitcoin? Yeah, it's not great. It's not great branding. So I'll say that I will hope that Russia doesn't do anything that other countries aren't duplicating at the same time. And, you know, I think that what we'll see from Russia is a framework for cryptocurrency to exist within the banking system, which will mimic what you'll see in a lot of other countries. So I don't think Russia will make an announcement that says Bitcoin is legal tender in our country. For that reason, it's probably good for Bitcoin branding if that doesn't happen. But at the same time, their banking framework and, and embracing cryptocurrency, that will be duplicated. When in 22 and 23 across the world in, in different countries. So, you know, El Salvador might be the only country that has Bitcoin as legal tender for another 12 months still. But I think that within the next 12, 24 months, you'll see many other countries coming on board with an official framework, official regulatory you know, 
framework, you know, legalization, a, a place in, you know, legal precedent, all those important things to get people using Bitcoin. May, may those words ring true and, and hope, hopefully it is not Russia, but some, somewhere else uh, that does adopt. And if it's the, the US, that would be just the, the bee's knees at that point. <laughs> Nick holding up his the USA and his uh on his Ryder Cup sweater. Uh, Nick, I know that you've mentioned you're not necessarily going to be on Twitter too much towards the end of the year. His Twitter handle is Time Value BTC for those who do want to follow him in the intermediary. Where can our view, uh, viewers and listeners get subscribed to the Bitcoin Layer? In addition, if you haven't, go read. Uh, layered money. It's required reading. I gave you all homework yesterday. If you have a new homework assignment, go read layered money. Um, but can you let our audience know where they can subscribe to your newsletter? Sure. So the Bitcoin layer.substack.com is where people can subscribe. You can find all of my links though at layeredmoney.com, which is a little easier to remember. So at layeredmoney.com, you can subscribe to uh, the Bitcoin layer. You can find books to, you can find links to the book in paperback, in the ebook, the audio book, uh, several uh, foreign language translations are also on there as well. So, and people, uh, you know, can find my Twitter link as well at time value of BTC. So I appreciate everyone's support, the, all the readers out there uh, of Layered Money and, and my Substack publication, The Bitcoin Layer. I very much appreciate all your support and uh, encouragement as we head into uh, the next writing season. Awesome, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us, man. I know that you have tons on your plate and we will let you get back to it. In the meantime, do not forget for those of you who have not yet purchased your tickets, use code YTMAG, get 10% off of your Bitcoin 22 conference tickets. We are 27 days out. I think I land in uh, Miami in 24 days. So you know, you know the drill, use code YTMAG, get 10% off. And if you find me at in Miami, we'll chat, we'll have some fun. We might even smoke and joint. Who knows?